Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I am Bishop Brenda Boss, and I use she, her pronouns. In this episode, we'll discuss the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 21 or Proper 16, which this year falls on August 27th. We have a couple content notifications for this episode. During the deep dive, we talk about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, as well as abuse specifically in the church. And in the gospel, we mention abuse briefly. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. This week, for our deep dive into the Office of the Keys, which is a Mm. super fancy phrase that I'm going to guess many people don't know because I only kind of know what it is. Fair. Totally fair. We are super excited to have as a special guest, Bishop Brenda Boss who happens to be the bishop of the Southwest California Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is a long title to say that she serves about 11,000 Lutherans in 105 congregations in Southern California. But you know, she doesn't let that define her. She lives with her wife, Janice, who is a social worker and an expert in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and their two rescue dogs, Knight and Split. They also have the most amazing granddaughter in the world, but... Bishop Boss is not interested in getting into a fight over that. Because <laughs> I will win. And I just, that's just, it's a bad to know when you start a fight that you're going to win. So I just don't that's even want to get started. That would right? be fair. Right. That's fair. I'm a pacifist, people. I'm a pacifist. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Brenda. It is Thanks. good to have you with us. Yes, we're so glad to nice have you. Nice to see you. Nice to be with you. Thank you. So, as Emily mentioned, Very few people actually have heard the phrase Office of the Keys Mm -hmm. before, and if they have, it's probably not in connection to the church. Like, personally, the first time I heard it, I was thinking it had to do with who unlocked the church in the morning, which, you know, those are important people. I love them because that means that I don't have to leave my house that early. Mm -hmm. But what exactly is the Office of the Keys? Yeah, right. Most people think it means keys to the office, and it doesn't. I mean, so... Yeah, it's a very obscure phrase. And I was so happy when I was invited to do this podcast because I love the office of the keys. I think in, in, well, you know, because I know what Jesus meant. And so I love it the way that I think Jesus meant it. And I hate it the way that the church takes it. And by the church, I mean capital C universal. And we'll talk more about that later. I know about who actually believes in the office of the keys. But in the Bible, if you remember, Jesus says to Peter, to you, I give the keys to the kingdom. And so that is the office of the keys, that who holds the keys to the kingdom. And Peter held the keys to the kingdom. And the Roman Catholic Church, no no shade against them. They were the, just the first organized Christian church. The, the, sure. the Roman Catholic Church believed that Jesus was saying, Peter, you're going to be the first pope. You're going to have the beginning of the church. To you, I give the keys of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so what it, the office of the keys means now is all authority to run the church. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off of that. But it means, it means the one who gets to make the decisions about what the church believes, the one who believes what the authority of the doctrine is. If we're going to write new dogma, you do that. That's what the church took it to. And that is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, to you are the keys of the kingdom. If you forgive somebody, their sins are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of anybody, their sins are retained. 
So mm-hmm. how we went from you should forgive people to you, you get to decide that women suck okay. is, yeah. is, you know, horrifying, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so that was what the Catholic Church sort of came up with. And again, no shade against the Catholic Church. They were just the first. Now you take the Roman Catholic Church and of course you get to Martin Luther who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. And what he wrote about the office of the keys is that it is the special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of the repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. And so those are like sort of the official words, I mean, Mm -hmm. translated into English, obviously, but that's sort of what Martin Luther said. So he took it seriously Mm -hmm. that it was about forgiveness and not forgiving. And so in our ordination rite, and I do ordinations a few times a year, right? As a Mm -hmm. bishop, it's one of the best, best, best parts of the job. Yeah or the call, if you will. But in that ordination rite, I say that every single time. If you if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And every single time that comes up, I sort of get chills because I think this is, this is a big deal. Yeah. And I think it's an invitation to forgive. I don't think it's an invitation to retain. And so mm. I find it interesting that Martin Luther actually, you know, as I like about Luther's work is that he rarely just says, here's the straight answer to something. He always kind of plays in nuance. And so mm-hmm. when he says, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained, he's really talking about the unrepentant sinner. And I kind of wonder about that. And I think, again, I don't think that Martin Luther was trying to say, I'm angry at the unrepentant sinner. I think he was saying, stay in relationship with the unrepentant sinner and don't let them off the hook. Mm-hmm. But I think that I meant that in a in a sure. stay in the messy part as yeah. opposed to rushing to get to a place where we're no longer intention about you're bad, I'm good. But instead, we're staying in this sort of hard piece where there may be a lack of repentance and a person following Jesus doesn't give up on them, mm-hmm. but wishes to sort of stay until the work is done. Yeah. The like phrasing that comes to mind with what you said, Martin Luther said, is the difference between cheap grace and costly grace, right? That grace yeah, is absolutely. freely given. And that's the, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That the grace and the forgiveness is free and that it's not cheap. I think about how much harm is continuously done. And we're seeing it more and more clearly, I think, because of social media and globalization and all of that stuff. But the harm that is actively ongoing against people. And then to say like, right, and that's the like Lutheran call to grace, which is great. But when we say probably Hitler's up in heaven too, like, I don't, I don't actually know. Like he right. he yeah. didn't repent right. to our knowledge. He did not repent at any point. And I believe in the abundant grace of God and also the people who cause harm and never repent of it. Like that's just like a scary thing. The people who yeah. are super queer phobic and cause harm and are enacting legislation that literally are leading to death for trans people. Yeah. My heaven as a trans person is not heaven if I have to sit next to them every meal, right? And that's like sometimes how it's portrayed is that like everybody gets forgiven and so everybody is together and so they're going to be right next to the people that they hate. And I'm like, what about the people that they hate? Like we don't deserve to be next to people who hate us. Yeah, which is a long and kind of meandering way. No, but I I appreciate it. I think, see, and I think this is part of, 
I mean, if you go back to the responsibility, right? If Jesus was truly giving Peter like the keys to begin the the kingdom, this kind of honest participation in I'm being I want to be careful here because I was going to say our honest participation in our sanctification, mm. and and yet that sounds like yeah. works and it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what you say, Emily, is so true. Like I love the idea of Hitler in heaven, but if Hitler's in heaven. Hitler has had an incredible transformation, which could only have been supernatural and could have only been through the Holy Spirit. And Hitler is in heaven, you know, cleaning toilets and licking boots, right? (laughs) I mean, willingly, joyfully saying, I will spend eternity making up for the, the harm I've caused. And I don't, again, it's not punishment. He's humble enough he now wishes to be the most humble person in heaven. Right. But I, I love your your thinking about this unrepentance, and that's fair. And, and again, Martin Luther wrote about in the Apostles' Creed in the third article about the Holy Spirit. And I can only believe because the Holy Spirit gives me the power to believe. And so mm-hmm. I can only forgive because the Holy Spirit gives me the power to forgive. And I can only love. Right, right? Yes. <laughs> but Jesus got it. Like, I can ask you to love your neighbor. You're never going to do it. Like, you just can't. Yeah. And therefore you need Jesus, right? I mean, when when I get to what the world needs, the world needs Jesus because Jesus gives us the ability with through the Holy Spirit to love and forgive in a way that humans clearly can't, right? Yeah. Clearly can't, yeah. I don't know that I would go around saying that I believe that Hitler's in heaven. I believe what I would say instead is that I believe that God is capable of transforming yeah. Hitler mm-hmm. yeah. in such a way. And my understanding of how all of those comments about the wheat and the chaff and stuff like that works mm-hmm. is that we will all have the parts of ourselves that are harmful and sinful removed from us, etc. And maybe by the time all of this happens, at the end of all things, we will have enough perspective to more fully understand what all this means, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But only God could do that kind of transformation. Only God could instill that kind of forgiveness. Well, and I appreciate the pushback from Emily. Like, really, am I supposed to be in heaven with people who hate me? And I think that God's got that covered. I don't, I Mm -hmm. don't know how, right? And again, that's why maybe not everybody's there, but I know we're going to get to heaven and be surprised, right? I know we will be surprised by who's there. You know, there's that great joke that I love so much where you get to heaven and there's this big wall. Have you ever heard this one? There's a big wall. And on the other side, there are people singing. And they're singing boisterously and you walk in and you go, who's that? And depending on which denomination you want to slam, (laughs) you say, you know, who's that behind the wall? Oh, those are the Baptists. They don't know anybody else is here. And so there's that kind of, you know, thing. And so this idea of heaven as a place that will surprise us, I I hope so, right? I look forward to it because I think that we as humans don't have a brain that can understand the grace as much as God can. And so there is something to come here. Yeah. And I think the pushback that I have around, like, particularly the Hitler example, is because I have heard so many times, particularly from white Christians and white Lutherans, about Hitler. And I, when I was a kid, right, like, that was the example of, like, how you know God loves you is because God loves Hitler. And, like, not not a thing that I repeat anymore, right? But like, there is this sense, particularly within white Christianity, that we don't, I mean, we don't want to be held accountable to in the present for our actions or the actions of our ancestors that continue to have ramifications today, let alone in heaven. And so there's this like, how do we make sure that we can get into heaven? Well, we're going to use this example because he's definitely worse than us. Yeah. 
Not to mention the fact that he's the example that we use because we feel good about ourselves for having fought against him, when in fact there are plenty of examples that we don't use because we, you know, we didn't. didn't, Yeah. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with white Lutherans Mm -hmm. defending Hitler. Yeah, that's not okay either. That's literally what the majority did. Yeah. Yeah. What is the white Lutherans is why we had Hitler, right? Yeah. so, yeah, I mean, again, that's super simplistic, but I kind of go, God, did that actually start among those who were in Germany at the time and went, oh, maybe God loves him too? I mean, it's too soon, right? It was too soon for them to think that way. But yeah, sure. yeah. I have to say, I'm thinking about something that I did when we're talking about, one of you mentioned the sheep and the goats at some point, which, or the wheat and the chaff. You yes, talked about yep. the wheat and the chaff, which was, we preached on the wheat and the and the weeds only a few weeks ago. And mm-hmm. that's a, a parable of Jesus where it's a wonderful story where in the middle of the night, an, an enemy comes and sows weeds a man, among a man's wheat crop. And his workers come to him and say, we got to pull all the weeds. And Jesus says, nah, let them grow together. We'll figure it out at the harvest time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of, of having to sit with there's good and bad at the same time. And so you mentioned the wheat and the weeds. There's another story that's the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, again, at the end of time, we will judge between the sheep, which are the good people, and the goats, which are the bad people. No shade on goats, because I think goats are probably lovely <laughs> animals. Although They're very smart. They have an intimate relationship. Yeah, very smart. Need them for weed, ironically, weed reduction. But Sue, I preached a, a sermon for a gorgeous queer woman. She and her partner had been good, good friends of mine and my wife and I. And she had died and she had the biggest heart on the planet. She was just absolutely lovely. And I forget why they wanted the sheep and the goat story. And I forget Mm. why, because it's a kind of a tough one for Mm. like a funeral, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was bothering me because of that, because of this sort of judgment of the goats. And the happiest moment to me in that sermon was when I came to the point where I was like, so now Judy's in heaven and she's receiving all the love of Jesus. And don't you believe that Judy says, but wait, what about those goats? Like, wait, I want to talk about the ones that aren't here. Yeah. How can we care for them and get them to come to understand God's love? And mm-hmm. and again, I think this gets back to this question of the, the office of the keys. Sure, I can forgive and I can retain sins, but I should be bothered by the ones who are retaining their own sin. Like that mm-hmm. should bother me. And right. I should not say, oh, well, God will figure it out. I should actively say, how can I change this person's perspective so that they wish to be liberated from their own sin and their own alienation from other people? And again, I don't want to get like gross and super powery and, you know, Enneagram mm-hmm. too, too much and be like, I, I've given up myself to go after these people who are struggling. But I do think that is the call to Christianity is to not just be like, well, somebody else's problem. No, like, how can I deliver the good news in a way they can hear it. And it has to be in a way that you can hear it, right? And I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. such the like feminist perspective and the queer perspective is you can't come with the hammer of white supremacy and say, this is what God says. You have to be curious about what cup of cold water can I offer to this person that may soften them even just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So you kind of mentioned this and like where the concept of the office of the keys comes from and it comes from what Jesus says to Peter which is we're we're doing this because that's the gospel reading for this episode yeah. which is why we're having this topic and all of that stuff but i'm also particularly like you like the keys to the office and the church made it the pope and i'm sitting here drinking my coffee from a mug that says church is horror uh-huh. It's in our merch store at 
bit.ly slash nerds at church merch. But <laughs> right, like that that there's so much horror. And the thing that that you didn't name explicitly, but I'm cheating because I can see your notes, is how we got to a place where the church had a pope, right? Where the church had the power culturally to yeah. even like have a pope and have dogma and have all of this stuff. So I'm curious if you can dig a little bit more into like when we say the office of the keys and when we talk about the history and how that name came to be and how that concept came to be, like how did we get from from you retain the sins of any to here's the dogma that we're handing down? Well, and uh, yeah, I'm not great in church history, so I'm going to kind of just explore this with you. I'm like, oh, I should look at my own notes. I don't know what I said. <laughs> but I have a hard time believing, and I'm probably so ignorant in this or so naive in this. I have a hard time believing that the disciples rested the power themselves, like they grabbed the power themselves. Like I have a hard time believing that Peter went, I should be Pope. Clearly I was named. I don't know. <laughs> and I think that they were still fishermen, right? I mean, yeah. I love the second chapter of Acts when the Pentecost comes because Peter, who's been kind of a screw up his entire career, suddenly <laughs> preaches the greatest sermon in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Second greatest sermon in the Bible. I think this, the Stevens is actually the best, but but sure. still, you know, okay, maybe, maybe the Sermon on the Mount should be in that top. I mean, there are, there well. are a couple, There's but lots. like for Peter, yeah. it's his best sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Say that. Right. that fair. So Peter all of a sudden is on fire and we realize that that's the Holy Spirit. But I just can't believe that Peter then said, I should, I should be in charge of everything. I think that at some point though, you know, we understand that in empire building, in power grabbing, you have to, it's believed that you have to have a hierarchy and that mm-hmm. you have to have somebody who sort of is, is the inside person that knows that maybe, you know, literally gets messages from God, mm-hmm. or at least is the one that we're going to entrust the power to. It's unfortunate that most of us who got most religious creativity comes from one voice. Like it's unfortunate that mm-hmm. you have Joseph Smith or you have Jesus or you have Buddha. Like you have one person oh. to get us started because then we think it has to be one person all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not in love with United States government anymore, but it's kind of why the United States cares about a president, but also cares about Congress because when we were formed, it wasn't just one guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think Judaism is a great example of a different way of doing it because within Judaism, the things that they hold sacred and the things that they give weight to are like conversations among rabbis that are written down over the centuries and millennia and not just a like, like, yeah, Moses is great and Moses is important, but like there's so much more to Judaism than that. And I love that part too. I agree with you. Totally. So, so I don't know enough about, church history to say how did you know because clearly we don't have the writings of peter to show us how he created the church but at some point somebody did and then kind of said oh yeah you know peter was the first one yeah no i'm not the first somebody else did that Mm -hmm. but unfortunately in religious power jesus felt the religious power was love and we haven't really been good at it ever since right Mm -hmm. we sort of said oh religious power is empire building is gathering money is results and, and as they were organizing churches, right, because even the Apostle Paul didn't organize churches. I mean, he may have started them, but he didn't say, and now we have a diocese, right. and now we have a, you know, a regional manager. He didn't say those yeah. kinds yeah. of things. And so I think the, so the church, as always, you know, from the very beginning, lost sight pretty quickly of what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. 
And I, so I guess that's all I can sort of say about how we got to a pope. And then, as we know, there was all this missionary effort to sort of spread the gospel, but then we needed to report back and sort of build more regional leaders that then reported to, you know, somebody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing that seems like it, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, we're still caught in that, especially in the, in the well, everywhere, but in the North American Christianity, right? We keep thinking we're failing because our numbers are dropping. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking that God is actually excited about the fact that we can't depend on our own might anymore. And that maybe we'll actually get back to relevance as we become more loving and more forgiving and more compassionate. And that maybe if we get back to the teachings of Jesus, we could actually become the church that God was always hoping we would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My bishop from my first call, Bishop Jim Gonya, used to talk about the ELCA in particular as right-sizing, that we had gotten to be too big in artificial ways. And I I think most denominations did. There was the big push of like, you can prove you're not a communist if you're a Christian and if you go to church. And so then people went to church even without the belief and without that sort of commitment. And so the right sizing of like, what does it mean to be smaller and more faithful or more intentional with our faith and our actions? Yeah. 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 So I suppose we tend to do this a lot, but we've been talking a lot about Lutherans and also because of church history Catholics. Is this specifically a Lutheran Catholic thing or is this like a general Christian thing? Like do other Christians talk about this kind of thing? Cause I've only ever heard Lutherans talk about it because it's in the small catechism. Yeah. And it is in the small catechism. Like we said, Martin Luther talked about it, about the authority that God, that Jesus gave us to forgive sins. And so that's why it's in our documents. You know, I kind of looked around and I agree with you. I think it's only, it's mostly Lutheranism, but there is, there is some Roman Catholic piece of this as well. But like, if you Google like office of the keys Baptist, you know, it's going to be who opens the church, right? It's going <laughs> to sure. be those kinds of things. You know? So I don't think so. Okay. And I wonder if part of the reason that it's in Lutheranism is because Martin Luther was working with the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, as we know, maybe we don't know, but, you know, there were seven, there's seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther thought all of them should go away except for Eucharist, Holy Communion and Holy Baptism. And he always wondered if he should have kept confession and forgiveness. And <laughs> we have so, two and a half. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We kind of have two and a half. Right. And so it makes sense that he often elevated that into yeah. a really high level. And yeah. so I think that's why it kind of stayed within us because our founder was exploring it. Yeah. That makes sense. So then within that, how does the Office of the Keys connect to the roles of like deacons and pastors? Well, like I said, it's in our ordination, right? Mm -hmm. So we really do want people to think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, to me, the two things, it's funny. Is it in the ordination right for deacons and pastors? I think it is. Okay. I should have looked that up, but I think it's in both. Actually, I think that the admonitions, which these are, I mean, they're they're scriptures, but they're the things like be be faithful to the flock, tend to your own spirituality, Mm -hmm. you know, read the Bible. All these kinds of things are are for both of them. I often wondered if there were key differences in the two ordination rites, and there really aren't. But so we, what it's supposed to look like, and I don't think a lot of pastors and deacons are drilling down on this, but Mm -hmm. what it's supposed to look like is that you are actively involved in the ministry of absolution, that you are actively involved in making a space where people can confess with courage and humility, and then be, be, be receiving the forgiveness. 
I have heard many church people say, I hate the confession part of the church service because it makes me feel bad. And I often say, we're not doing it right then because you have to have an absolution. You have to have a forgiveness or we're missing the point. And so in the lives of pastors and deacons, it looks like as a called and ordained minister in the church of Jesus Christ and by his authority, Mm -hmm. which is the office of the keys, Mm -hmm. I announced to you the complete forgiveness of all your sin. And I used, when I first heard that, the first time I heard that I was freaked out. I was like, did my pastor just forgive my sins? That's not okay. She doesn't have that authority. And she was like, actually, I am saying it's Jesus, right? It's the authority of Jesus that Mm -hmm. does it. But yeah, he told me I do. So I'm here to forgive you. And then back to our other point about retaining. And if you are unrepentant, I'm here to meet you in your unrepentance if, you know, and again, that's very rare that a person who's unrepentant is going to come talk to a pastor about it, Mm -hmm. but they might talk to a deacon about it. Right. But I'm supposed to also be caring for you in your retention and showing you you're holding, you're carrying something you, you don't need to carry. Yeah. And I think, I think part of why people can say that like, it doesn't feel good to do the confession and forgiveness is because we have, I don't know if we ever did, but particularly, again, for white Christianity, there hasn't been a consequences for our actions, a responsibility. Like the number of times that people, especially people with power in the church, do harm. And then like even when they apologize, like the comments in a public apology are filled with, oh, but you're a good person. Oh, you're okay. Not from the people that are harmed, but from their group, right? Because we, there are consequences for harm. And in order to restore community, there has to be repentance. And I think that's where, when you talk, when you were talking about participating in our own sanctification, like maybe not on an individual level, but yeah, we participate in our own sanctification on a corporate level on a communal level that like we have to participate we have to be repentant of the harm that we cause in order for our community to live into the holiness of god the sanctification of god the love of god in the larger sense personally speaking i love the fact that we do the confession and forgiveness at almost every single Mm -hmm. service except for the season of easter because easter is special and i did have a great conversation once with an ecumenical colleague who i I mentioned in passing that we do that at at almost every service and she said seriously that's hardcore and i (laughs) i wish so dearly that i had been on the ball in the moment enough to say that's lutheran but i didn't (laughs) but I do wonder sometimes if we would make the point of what the confession and forgiveness is supposed to do better, because we have the confession where the congregation confesses together in a very generalized sense with the script, and that can change sometimes too. And then the pastor announces the absolution, but I kind of wish that we had like the congregation acknowledge the absolution, like state mm-hmm. for themselves, I understand that I am forgiven. God's mm. forgiveness does has taken it it really does mean something yeah this is like even just a like thanks be to god for forgiving me something like that amazing Yeah, we do the exact same one every week in my church because this church loves one particular setting and they use the exact same liturgy every week. But I know that some churches rewrite it every week and I would love to see one that does that because I think that would help Mm -hmm. the people who find it depressing better. Yeah, yeah, 
Oh yeah, no, I've I've worked with Presbyterians. The amount of liturgy they love writing every week just I I adore <laughs> that for baffling. them and it exhausts me. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am in a different church every Sunday and I can't tell you how often there's there's usually a confession and forgiveness, but there's a frequently not really a good forgiveness. And sometimes it's just a prayer and I'm like, where's the absolution? And I, and so again, mm-hmm. it's it's we aren't getting it right. But I love the second piece of the like, thank you for, you know, I, I praise God that I'm forgiven. That would be spectacular because mm-hmm. to me, the script is the script is good and problematic in that it becomes rote and we don't consider mm-hmm. yeah. it anymore. And I really try to let I in the way I speak, I really try to have people understand, like, by grace, you are saved. Mm-hmm. Right. I right. mean, the power of the Holy Spirit has forgiven you. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Also, we'll just throw in as like a person with family and friends and community who have been so harmed by the church that they think that some of the things they do are wrong or sinful, even when they're not. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the number I am well known in my circles for rejecting people's apologies. Right. But sometimes like that's not enough. I I reject apologies when they're unnecessary because the person hasn't done anything to apologize for. And sometimes I have actually like, like made the sign of the cross and proclaimed forgiveness and named it as like you are forgiven for things you don't even need to be forgiven for. Right. And and they have like we're talking about a specific thing that like they didn't mess up. They didn't. And it's that piece also has so much grace in it and so much love because it is backtracking, I think, some of the harm that the church causes to to convince people that they can do no good. Yeah. 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 That's important, right? I mean, there's so much shame that's mm-hmm. so ingrained for so long. And if we can just keep saying those pieces yeah. that are, you know, you are beautiful, you're a beautiful child of God and I will keep saying it and I will keep forgiving you for things that you don't have to be forgiven for if it heals you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Being bad at math is neither a sin or a character flaw. <laughs> Etc. How does the office of the keys impact your role as Bishop? Like I'm yeah. sure there's all kinds of confidentiality and such, but like, do you find that you think about the office of the keys as a Bishop on a regular basis? It's a great question. I find when I am in an area of, I'm, I'm not even going to say discipline because I don't know that I've had to discipline a lot of people, but I've certainly been in plenty of conversations with people who have behaved badly or are accused of being behaved badly. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes back to what Emily was talking about. There is a person here who needs grace, but there's a community that has been harmed by this. Mm -hmm. And so I frequently am thinking, uh, it becomes a very spiritual experience. And some people may be surprised by that, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say all bishops enter into discipline proceedings with with spirituality. I I wish that were the case. But Again, maybe it's because of the seriousness of the Office of the Keys. I wish to be looking to Jesus a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jesus wasn't this touchy-feely person. I mean, there's this whole backlash going on right now. And I, whether or not how true it is, but that there are certain evangelical thoughts that say that Jesus is too weak. Like we can't follow Jesus anymore because Jesus is too weak. And I think you're missing the point about Jesus because Jesus offered forgiveness, but Jesus also demanded repentance, right? I mean, Jesus also called out bad behavior. Yeah. Vulnerability is strength. Yeah. Well, yes. And he wasn't always vulnerable, right? Right. But he was, he was faithful and authentic. And I think that can look like a lot of different things. 
So back to me and having to deal with discipline, it goes back and forth. I would say that my key call is to care for the body of Christ. There are Mm -hmm. people within that body that are injured and are abusers, but I'm here to care for the entire body. So I need to love those that are harmed and I need to love those who are the abuser, but I also have to sort of call out bad behavior. Like I said, I haven't had a ton of this and it's something that I'm growing into because as a person before I was in this office, even before I was a pastor, I was pretty afraid of confrontation and I was pretty afraid of truth telling. And now as I see, and to be completely frank, I've learned this more from the queer community and from the BIPOC community that speaking the truth is, is critical. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no wiggle room on you have to say the thing. Yeah. And my staff is mostly people of color and they push me hard. And I would say the things that they're the most disappointed about in me is when I haven't sort of lived into the hard spots. And so yeah. that's something I'm still learning. So I would say as, as the office of the bishop, I do think about it probably more than I realize, right? That this is mm-hmm. a piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, and so the episode that comes before this, that as we're recording has not been released yet, is the one about the Canaanite woman who Jesus calls a dog. And that's mm-hmm. like, I think that's part of it is so frequently, so often, like we are the, the things that are hard and problematic that we should be wrestling with just get excused and explained away. And that's like that going for those things. That is the faithful thing. That is what Jesus calls us to again and again and again. Like Jesus praises this woman for calling him on his calling her a dog. Yeah. Like it is very intentional, but is hard, is really hard. And to me, that's why Jesus stands up. Right. If Jesus was this toxic positivity leader, I couldn't follow him anymore. And I think Mm -hmm. it's the fact that we can trust him to walk into very difficult spaces because he did. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I want to follow him, because he's seen it all. And therefore, my stuff lines up with the experiences of Jesus. And that helps me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. so. Our planned next question was, why does the Office of the Keys matter? But I would like to tweak that a little bit because I feel like we've answered that question like eight times already. (laughs) In that, I I would like to ask, why do we have the Office of the Keys? Why is this something that what we would call rostered leaders, bishops, deacons, and uh, and pastors are trusted with? And not like everybody? I, I, I suppose, sure. Yeah, because I actually think it is everybody. But so this conversation that we've had, right, which is really dug into forgiveness and grace and Mm -hmm. repentance and unrepentance. What if we understand that a key piece of the kings of the kingdom, right? The key piece of what Jesus was trying to do. So Jesus is leaving. Jesus knows he needs a successor. He hands Peter the keys, right? Mm -hmm. And says, it's yours now. And then he talks about forgiveness. What if Jesus understood that the main work of the kingdom was reconciliation? Mm-hmm. And therefore, forgiveness needed to be like high, high, high on the list. Yeah. And so what if we thought of ourselves as reconcilers? And it still plays out to everything. If, all, if our work is reconciliation with each other, with ourselves, with God, that still gives us a good grounding for Eucharist. It still gives us a good grounding for baptism. It mm-hmm. still gives us a good grounding for preaching and evangelism. So you can still have all the stuff the church wants to do. But if our key role is reconciliation, I think that's why. I think that's why it's an important piece of pastors and deacons. And truthfully, of course, all all followers of Jesus. But 
but I think that's a, I, I'm wondering about that. And we yeah. just don't spend enough time thinking that's what our role is when we yeah. decide that we have a call to ministry. Yeah. And I think if we take that seriously and think about reconciliation in a comprehensive way, and we had Aubrey Thonvold of Reconciling Works on a couple, I think two, in our second half season, to two years maybe? ago, something like that. Yeah. Um, to talk oh my God, I thought you were going to say like two weeks ago because no. you're, you're sounding so like, oh, we had Aubrey and... No, 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 no. But we had her on to talk about reconciliation. And part of it yeah. is that right now, like if we are taking reconciliation more seriously as our role, that also means, or ideally, hopefully should, would mean that reparation and repairing of harm and repentance is taken more seriously because right now it's so so often people want to skip all of that and jump from Mm -hmm. harm to reconciliation harm to forgiveness and we'll get into forgiveness more in a few weeks with our super exciting special guest but but there is that space right that in order to reconcile there has to be a repentance. There has to be a change in yeah. at least one person, if not everybody, to come back together from harm. Yeah. One of the things I'm thinking about when you say that is the difference from harm to reconciliation and how we want to skip. And I think about what you said earlier. I'm famous for not accepting apologies. And what I think we're stuck in right now as a society is if I get the words right, right? If I can say the right Mm. apology, I'm golden. And isn't that such a church thing, but isn't that such a human thing? Like get up into our brain, say the magic phrase and I'm okay. And you're saying, oh no, no, no. It's so much more than words. It's repair, it's reparation, Mm -hmm. it's action and not one action, a whole thing that's going to cost you. And again, I think the church could have something to say about that. See, and I think that's interesting because Oddly enough, I am actually also somewhat famous for rejecting apologies, but the ones I reject are the ones where someone says, I'm sorry, and I say, no, you're not. Like, you you do not feel bad about this. <laughs> yeah. And, right? Yeah. Like, that's also true. I mean, it's like, the problem it's like when you make preschool kids apologize, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hug it out, you say you're sorry, and I'm like, this is not, this is not getting a set, right? This is yeah. not teaching us the right way. Yeah. Right. And, like, part of me also, as you were talking about, like, if I get the words right, I'm like, yes, if you get the words right and you understand them and mean them... Okay. Yeah. Right. Because it does matter if I say, I'm sorry if you were hurt versus I'm sorry I hurt you. Right. Yeah. yeah, Like that makes a huge difference. But if I'm just saying it so that I'm saying it the right way and not saying it because I understand that I caused harm, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. I'm thinking about the first time I was asked to apologize as bishop. And I was so sad. I was, I was heartbroken. And I had to sit for a minute and say, am I crying because I'm embarrassed? Am I crying because this Mm. is a bad start? Or am I crying because I hurt these people? And it took me a minute, right, to unpack all of it, Mm -hmm. because I was devastated. And I thought, well, this is perhaps the change of heart I'm supposed to have, right? Mm. Perhaps I am supposed to feel this bad. But don't make it about me, right? What am I what am I sad about? And I think that's an important piece of forgiveness and reparation and all of that too. Yeah. Yeah. So we already talked about this a, lo- a lot, an amount, about like what it means to retain sins. And there are different ways that people have talked about retaining sins. And we've kind of talked about it as like, if someone is not repentant, then you're not forgiving their sins. You're retaining their sins. But that like the word retain is a weird word 
because it's not don't forgive, right? It's not if you don't forgive the sins of any, they're not forgiven. It's they are retained. So I'm curious if you could like just expand on that a little. Well, I worry about it. And I, and, you know, if I was really nerdy, I would have looked up the Greek, not that I would have been Hmm. great at it, but, but, you know, I, I worry about retaining, right? Because that means I hold on to it and it doesn't say make the person hold on to it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think about Pee Wee Herman, the late, great Pee Wee Herman. Right. <laughs> or I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but yes. what am I? Like if you are going to say the sin comes on to, it says, I hold on to the sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, because Jesus says, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That would mean that I took on the person's sin, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and I don't know, but that's what right? I find odd is, is Jesus actually saying not forgiving is bad for you because you're going to continue to bear the burden of the other person. And I, I find that odd and confusing. But one of the things I wondered about is if Jesus is saying, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. Like it goes away, everybody's clear. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It means the sinner still has them, but now I have them too. And therefore, if I'm also holding the sins of others, can I then somehow offer or pray for forgiveness, but not on their behalf, right? Because I can't forgive for you. Right. Like I can't take Kay's sin retain case sin and then offer it up on the, you know, yeah. on the altar of forgiveness. Okay. So in the interest of being honest about this episode and also, you know, when in doubt, kids, be honest with your bishop. It's usually a good policy and also other bishops. I am sort of the person who was behind having this as a topic for a deep dive. And the reason for that is because I have a story, which is not about me. I was not there. But this is a story I heard from a college professor of mine who spent some time as a parish pastor. I will allow him to remain plausibly deniable if he wants to. But I will say that if you know a guy who pronounces his Hebrew with a Texan accent, you might have an idea of who this is. And... Uh, He spent some time as a parish pastor before eventually becoming a professor. And during his time in the parish, he had an incident where he was in a parish for a few years. He had been working with this council. The council was, you know, doing the normal variety of things. And there was this guy on the council who, for whatever reasons that I'm sure were personal to him, had spent like three quarters of his time on the council just throwing up every possible barrier and obstruction to the council's work. And like, he felt like that was his job somehow. And he was just constantly putting things in the way of this council doing perfectly necessary and, you know, quite often fairly ordinary and not controversial work, like, you know, just getting the normal things done, getting the bills paid, etc. And this guy just kept doing this. And my professor who was the pastor at the time, tried to make a connection with him, tried to get through to him, tried to understand what was going on. No headway whatsoever over the course of, I think he said two years. And eventually in the middle of a council meeting, this council member goes off on one of his rants again and is putting up these obstructions. And to be entirely honest with you, I don't know if my professor had been taught this formula or if it's something that just came to him in the moment. But he said, to this man, something along the lines of, in the name of Jesus Christ, I bind your sins to you forever, or something like that. Ah. Yeah, I I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if it was a formula he was taught, or if it was something that came to him, if it was a Holy Spirit moment. But he said that, he explained that it was the office of the keys and and what it meant. And then he stood up and walked out of the room. 
And then I believe that the other council member also left. And like the council meeting ended, basically, is, is what I understand happened. And then the next day, he called this guy. They got together. They had a meeting. They talked about everything that happened. This essentially worked as a wake-up call. This guy realized that mm. what he was doing was harmful, was causing harm to people he was supposed to care about as a council member. And they talked about that. He started a bit of a repentance process and then they did confession and forgiveness and as his pastor he forgave this man for his sins and and basically undid the office of the keys but it was supposed to serve as a wake-up call and that's how i was taught that the office of the keys was supposed to work and it's a last ditch mm. effort but it's supposed to be the last ditch way of waking a person up to what they've been doing and so that was also related to how I was taught what the difference between an ordained person's role is with the Office of the Keys versus a personal layperson's role. Because a layperson can forgive on behalf of themselves, mm -hmm. but the pastor forgives on behalf of the church, on behalf of the body of Christ. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I love that it included, and then the pastor called the next day, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. it wasn't the end of it. Right. No, it, they continue That's really powerful. Yeah. And so yeah. I've had colleagues who have told me that they feel that they could never use the office of the keys. And in the back of my head, I've always had that story. And I've always yeah. said, you know, I don't want to, but also but like you're causing Jesus gave me this for a reason <laughs> and I'm not closing myself off to it. Yeah. But I haven't had to yet. Thank God. That's fascinating. The example that my mind went to, and I think I'm just like in a place of like systemic stuff sure. was the space of retaining sins and apologizing on behalf. So the sin of slavery, there was by and large- Hundreds and thousands of people. Involved. Not repentance for slavery. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the church, I mean, the, the church responded in a lot of different ways and there are like denominations that split over whether or not humans should be property. But then I think about like how the sins- of slavery, which is still legal for people who are incarcerated, continue today. And what the role is for like retaining that sin that happened when none of us were alive and then moving to a space of obviously repentance and reparation, but also of apologizing for that. And I think about like the ELCA has made like corporate apologies occasionally, right? Like we finally sure. renounced the doctrine of discovery and are working on doing better in, in terms of relationship with support of and respect for indigenous peoples and lands. We apologize to people of African descent. It was a weirdo, it was a mediocre apology. <laughs> An attempt was made. But an attempt was made, right? <laughs> like there's things that we've done corporately and there's conversations that have happened around like apologizing on behalf of the country. And those things, I wonder if that is the place of retaining the sins and then seeking forgiveness when the person whose sins you have retained has died or the groups, right? And so at that point, their sins are like between... I mean, they're always between them and God, but like God's the only one that can intervene because right. indulgence is not real. But there's still the harm that has happened because of them and that is ongoing because of them. And is that the place where then those of us who retain those sins, who don't forgive those sins, is that where we can, t is, is it that then we have the responsibility to do the repairing 
and doing and do the repentance and make the apologies. I feel like apologizing is so different from confession and forgiveness, though. I, I mean, it's it's the confession part, but the the absolution is not. Well, and when you get to that point, when you're talking about things like slavery, who's who does the forgiving, right? Yeah. Who does the absolution? Because that also is hundreds, is millions of people, mm-hmm. right? So, yeesh, yeah. And like that's that's part of it, though. Like if we're if we are apologizing, if we are confessing sins, there is the confession of sins to God, but there's also like most sin harms people in some capacity or creation. And if we're apologizing there, like we have to be okay with not being forgiven. We have to be okay with the people we're apologizing or the creation that we're apologizing to not saying, I forgive you. And if you want experts on that, talk to people who have gone through sobriety processes. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing as it is 12 steps, right? I mean, if you don't get it in one or two, it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, so we've talked about like how complicated this is and a lot of the ways that this kind of can play out, but this also could be abused, right? Like it seems like this is real easy for abuse. So I'm I'm curious how, like what you think about that and how do we navigate when something could be really badly abused? I think it goes back to the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. Now, Kay has told an amazing story, right, of somebody who actually said, I'm retaining your sin, and it brought reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be the best version of what Jesus expected also. But so I think we're talking about, I mean, I suppose we're talking about abuse in both ways, right? You've got the, I forgive people who aren't repentant, which, you know, certain people who wish to pardon certain people comes to mind, mm-hmm. you know, that kind mm-hmm. of forgiveness. And so that could be abusive. But then this retention where you just go around and say, I'm not forgiving you, I'm not forgiving you, I'm not forgiving you. And I I wrestle a lot with as a person who wants to have my cake and eat it too, right? <laughs> like I want to be able to forgive everybody and I don't want to have to retain anybody. And yet there is equal parts here. So in my mind, if you if I was a bishop who saw a pastor holding this retaining as a, as a power play, I would want to speak into it. If I was a bishop who was holding those retentions, I would want somebody else to, you know, come, come at me Mm -hmm. because that was not the idea. Right. I don't think, I don't think that was the idea that we are supposed to be retaining and, and somehow holding back what God has wanted to offer freely. Yeah. I don't know how you do it back to the wheat and the weeds gospel from a few weeks ago. I heard the greatest sermon about this at the ordination of Dinah Washington. And I think John Valentine was the man that preached it. And he said, we keep thinking, you know, if we think the church is in the weed control business, we're wrong. And so that feels like people who feel like they're supposed to retain Mm -hmm. sins, right? He was like, we're not in the weed control business. We're in the wheat business. Like we're growing crops. We're not trying to harm weeds. And so that feels like what this is too. The abuse comes if we feel we're supposed to be somehow knocking everybody down. And that's sort of what the Jesus story was too. Like, don't worry about it right now. Let them be harvested and then we'll figure it out later. And, and I think that's a huge part of a, a life of faith is God's timing versus mine. Yeah. Right. Cause we want to yeah. figure this all out right away. And I'm not trying to abdicate, but like yeah. clearly God's schedule is different than mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most of us object to that pretty regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. A couple times a day. Uh Yeah. So do you feel that the Office of the Keys is ultimately helpful? Like, is this a good thing, I guess? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I go back to the statement about the church is really about reconciliation, then yeah, I think it is. Because not only are we the active ministry of, of forgiveness, but we also are in the active ministry of calling out 
what needs to be repented of and, and moving towards the health of the body. So I do think it can be a good thing. And it is a little bit mystifying to me that it's not part of other traditions. Mm. And, you know, for a second, I get super judgy and I'm like, well, but other traditions would abuse it because they love to judge. And I'm like, yeah. said, yeah. the ju- said the judgy one, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Great. So yeah, I think it's worth exploring, right? I think this has been an interesting conversation because I don't think we spend a lot of time in this. Yeah. Our first reading for this episode is from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 6. The prophet Isaiah encourages those who seek righteousness to also seek guidance from the lives of people of God who have gone before. So one of the themes for this passage is God as everlasting, right? That God has been around the whole time. And I was like, so it's a little bit like stardust, right? And I love the Ash Wednesday blessing of you are dust and to dust you shall return and you are stardust and to the cosmos you shall return. So like this idea of God as stardust that like God doesn't end. God is in everything, but also we are stardust, right? Because everything is made of stardust and so then I was thinking about energy and I was in a sciencey mood and so then like energy where it is neither created nor destroyed it just like shifts and changes and that also seemed like a good like god is everlasting but also not unchanging not sedentary that's not the word well static not static yeah dynamic right yeah god is dynamic not static yeah and then in verse one, we read, listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the everlasting. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. And I love this because like the things that come to mind for me are like where I grew up, there was a lion in the mountain like that you could see. And it's hmm. it's just this like the natural rock formations are given names and And I think about like Mount Rushmore, which is carved into, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, Tunkashila Shakpe, which is the Lakota pronunciation, or Six Grandfathers, which is sacred land in the Black Hills or the Pahasapa, right? And the rock from which Mount Rushmore was hewn is sacred land. And yet the people who did that were carving it up, were breaking it up. And so it's not the rock from which you were hewn... And so you reflect that rock, but the rock from which it was hewn, and then you you damage that rock. Or like Stone Mountain in Georgia, and it's actually the same guy who has connections to the KKK who did both of those, which is extra, extra bad. <laughs> but yeah, but like that, where we take like rocks that have shape and have meaning and have names, and then so frequently the white people come in and they're like, ah, now we're going to carve it up and make it look like other people. Yeah. Yeah. And in something of a reversal of that, in verse 5, we read, I will bring near my deliverance swiftly. My salvation has gone out and my arms will rule the peoples. The coastlands wait for me and for my arm they hope. And this sort of gave me a, a mental image of God's outstretched arms. And it very much reminds me of the end of the movie Moana, when Taka is transformed back into Tafiti, and she spreads out her arms and life and healing spread out over the islands with them. Mm. And I, I really love that image. Yeah. And then in our second reading for this episode is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Paul invites the people of God to be transformed by their faith and embrace the many gifts of ministry among them. And I was thinking about this in terms of like diverse gifts. And a lot of times I go to like divergent, but I recently rewatched 
the newer Jumanji movies, which are like video game Jumanjis instead of board games. And Mm -hmm. it keys in on the different gifts of characters in the game as necessary and vital to their survival. Like one person can read a map and so it's blank for everybody else. And then the person that can read it is like, oh, it goes right here or has like the facts about the animals and all of that stuff. And it really is like, literally you cannot survive unless you have everybody who can play, play and all of those different gifts. You know, and I love movies like that, that have this like amazing theme and we're like, this should be basic idea. And yet (laughs) we're like, oh, I love that so much that they put that all together. It's kind of how we're supposed to be, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Writers. Those writers. They're amazing. Those writers. You know what? They should get all the money they deserve. They should. They should, they should get justly and generously <laughs> compensated for all their work. So should those actors putting those yeah, words boy, into Yeah, boy, we don't have a movie or a TV show without an idea and people to express it. But I, I digress. <laughs> that's that's a, the, that particular, like the WGA and SAG After Strikes are come up almost every episode so <laughs> yeah we on. keep making it we because we, i was gonna say you know as the bishop of hollywood i might have an opinion on this <laughs> as the bishop of hollywood and someone who used to work as someone who used to work in in television absolutely right yeah yeah yep yep and a lot of suffering because of some greed just now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. strange mm-hmm. weird mm-hmm. how that works weird how that works it's like a restaurant not wanting to pay the people who make food. But, you know, I digress. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and grow the food. You who know, grow the food otherwise... and serve the food yeah. and all the yeah. foods. And, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this passage in Romans is, you know, a favorite and gorgeous in every single way. And it certainly talks about one body, many members. And it's interesting that earlier in the podcast, we were talking about caring for the body of Christ. And, mm. and what that means, right? That it's not just, oh, if I brush my hair, I've taken care of the body of the Christ. No, no. It's the whole, whole body. Yeah. yeah. It is true. And then as we dive into the verses, in verse two, we read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, God wants change, A, and also this is clear evidence that you don't need to be trans to be Christian, but it is strongly recommended. <laughs> also, if you love that quote, which is actually based off of Galatians 3.28, but fits really well here. If you love that quote, we will link to it, but it is also in our merch store, bit.ly slash nerds at church merch. Pace, friend of the podcast and creator of Horror Nerds at Church, came up with that. And I just think it's brilliant. So... Very good. Absolutely. And then in verse four, we read, for as in one body, we have many members and not all the members have the same function. And what this means is that not everyone is good at the same things. And when we divvy up tasks, it's important to take that into account. For example, on the TV show Firefly, they did not make Jane the diplomat. (laughs) They did not have Wash fixing up injuries. And they almost never gave Simon a gun. Like, if they gave Simon a gun, that was a bad sign. It's true. Or Kaylee. And Kaylee also. Yeah, for that matter. Absolutely. With the gun. And so you can watch someone struggle with a job, or you can give the job to someone who will actually be good at it. And as a person with ADHD, this is something that I have been trying to learn. And this is why having more than one person around, this is why the body of Christ, consisting of more than one body, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Truth. And then our gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. 
When Simon Peter identifies Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah, Jesus announces that he will found the church and gives him the responsibility of the Office of the Keys. Ta-da! The Office of the Keys! I wonder where I've heard that before. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like I was just talking about that. One of the themes besides the Office of the Keys in this passage is the idea of identity. And I, I think that this is interesting because the framing of identity that Jesus uses is not this is who I am, but who do people say I am and who do you say I am? And I I love the way Doctor Who deals with identity because there are different doctors, right? Each regeneration is a new doctor, but it's also a shifting of identity. So it's not just fish sticks and custard bow ties and fez hats, <laughs> but also like in one of the iterations, doctor comes to mean the one who wages war. Yeah. And in others, it's the one who helps. And the, But the ways that we act impact how people understand the words that are connected with our identities, which I thought was really interesting, particularly for like those of us who are deacons or pastors or have other roles that are very tied to identity and sometimes too closely tied to identity. But like the ways that people understand what it means to be a pastor depend on the pastors that they've experienced. Right. And yeah. I th- and I think that's such an important part of modern church is to help people unpack their understanding of what a pastor or a deacon or a priest or a nun or a bishop is mm-hmm. based on old stories. And for so long, because we depersonified religious leaders, we only knew that they were sort of white men mean white men kind, right? Yeah. You know, and so that we, we were sort of binary on that, like good pastors, bad pastors. And instead we have to have this much more complicated idea of it and to invite people into that. I mean, like you said, you know, an awful lot of people who've been harmed by the church and we all do, sure. but you are in a world where the conversation has been invited and has become safe to talk about the nuance of that. Mm-hmm. In my life, what's been painful is the people that were the most important to me, right? The most formative, the ones that actually made me the person I am today also had harm. And so how do you live in that world where both are, are true and to be honored? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's right. That's what happens in abusive relationships and families and all that stuff is the good and the bad. And they are both present. Yeah. In my translation in NRSV, it says, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, which is a little different than the sins in the retaining of the sins, which mm-hmm. is in another passage where Jesus says it that way. But I do always wonder about that. What does it mean to be bound on earth? Mm-hmm. How are we bound? How have we been bound with our own shame or a story that people say about us? Mm-hmm. And again, if it gets back to sort of reconciliation and liberation, what gifts do the people that hold the keys are, what are we off? What, what are we able to give yeah. as we unbind people? Right. And, An important piece of that. And yeah. is the binding always a bad thing? Cause yes. we also sing bind us together, Lord. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. are we always binding people? I mean, right. The kink community will definitely say that like binding <laughs> is not always bad. Consent sure. is important. Yes. But binding is not always bad, but also Brenda knows, but we, in the Proclaim community, which is a professional community for LGBTQIA plus pastors, deacons, and seminarians, and everybody kind of between and beyond in that and realm. Possibly bishops? Yes, who are also okay. pastors right now. There yes. are a few bishops, yeah. In the Lutheran Church. Sure. But Proclaim had a gathering 
that was Church Unbound. And it was connected to the, I think, 2019. We had our gathering right before the 2019 Churchwide Assembly, which marked 10 years since the change of policy that allowed people to be openly in same gender relationships and serving as pastors and deacons. And the conversations that we had at that gathering around what it means to be unbound and when binding is good and when binding is bad, and particularly with like bound conscience, which is a fancy Lutheran term for, I don't have to talk about it, you can't make me, is how it has played out, though that's not how it was intended. But that like the ways that we restrict and the ways that some things do need to be restricted, right? We need to bind sin. We don't need to bind each other to sin, right? Or to shame or those sorts of things. But yeah, yeah, I have lots of thoughts on binding. So many. So as we jump into the verses, in verse 14, we read, And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, historically, when I have read this verse, I'm usually thinking, okay, they're saying that people know that Jesus is important because all of these people are important. Or they're saying that people know that Jesus is a prophet because all of these people are prophets. But, you know, this time I think I it might have been the first time I noticed that all of these people are also specifically known for being kind of yelly and ticking people (laughs) off like these are folks who are perfectly happy to say the hard thing out loud as many times as the other folks need in order to be able to hear it Mm -hmm. because you know yes sure they're also prophets they're also important but like isaiah and some of the others did not really have this reputation of being the folks who are perfectly happy to yell and scream as necessary Mm -hmm. and i usually try to not go to the muppets during this section of our segment because i know that we'll go to the muppets later but it immediately made me think of it's kind of like being told that you remind people of miss piggy and on the one hand yes that is an enormous compliment and on the other hand yes that is definitely saying something very specific (laughs) yeah that's true that is oh that is a good one i was looking at verse 16 where jesus says but who do you say that i am and simon peter answers you are the messiah the son of the living god and i was thinking about there's this like aspect of particularly like autistic communication where some people talk about it as like autistic people are very literal but I was watching a TikTok the other day and somebody shifted it and it's like it's not that it's literal it's that it's precise that like the language is very precise which means everybody needs to know what this word means not necessarily like how it's used and in this part where Simon Peter is answering I'm like okay Simon Peter answers with the precise answer it is correct but the metaphorical abstractly meaningful language Simon Peter's not exactly on because right like this then prompts Jesus to say like okay here's what it means to be Messiah and Peter's like no that's not what it means to be Messiah it's that kind of a Messiah that's not it and so I just was thinking about that like precise language versus the more metaphorical or abstract language and the ways that that can like really clash in some very concrete ways but Peter is correct and also sure not trying to correct the messiah on who the messiah is is maybe not the brightest idea you know (laughs) but it's so on brand Mm -hmm. it's so on brand like i love him he's so consistent Mm -hmm. yeah yeah peter yep Mm -hmm. yeah for being two thousand years old the gospels have some great character building processes that we can still (laughs) learn from in literature absolutely it's true yeah it's true speaking of character building and (laughs) you know delightful people who write amazing things 
it is now time for our most keyed up segment. <laughs> Let's make a Muppets musical. We're... <laughs> We've never had music for this segment before. Excellent. You've never had music for it? No. It's time to put on makeup. It's time to light the lights. It's yes. time to get it started. The Muppet Show tonight. Yeah. Anyway, let's make a Muppets musical. The way we do this is we cast a Muppet or a human. So it's thinking about, this came from a Twitter conversation between Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg, Daniel Rutenberg and Kay. But thinking about like, if we were to make one of the passages into a Muppets musical, who would we cast as like the token human or what Muppet would definitely have to be a certain character or that sort of a thing. So I'm curious, Brenda, if you have particular Muppets that you think should be cast or... So are we talking about the gospel? So it can be any of the readings or it could also be just like in general. Of the Bible in general, right? Yeah. We give our guests a lot of flexibility. Some of our, yeah. And and some of our readings are not really like story driven and therefore are a little harder to connect to Muppets anyway. Epistles? Well, so if it's... So let's talk about Peter, right? Mm-hmm. If it's Peter telling Jesus, no, 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 that that kind of Messiah. Hmm. I, I mean, is that it's not? It could be Miss Piggy, but it's kind of, Miss Piggy's a little more more. Well, Miss Piggy was going to say is more obstinate than Peter, but no, that's not really true. It's kind of yeah. she, she's a louder obstinacy. She, she's a different kind of obstinacy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she really kind of is. Yeah. So I don't even know what what you know what honestly. What about Animal? I love Animal <laughs> so much. Is animal maybe Peter? Because really, animal is perceived as angry, but really he's just exuberant. Yeah, and he tends mm-hmm. to mess stuff up in his. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah, so maybe that. I like that. I, I like yeah. animal as exuberant as an exuberant yeah. Peter. Because mm-hmm. then, right, you put animal walking on water and sinking. You put animal in. You know, I, you know, you'll never wash my feet. All those. Things. <laughs> so that, that makes some sense. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I didn't actually get to imagining Muppet casting for our gospel reading because I got stuck on our first reading of those who pursue righteousness. And we've talked before about righteousness being right relationship and things being in right relationship to each other and people also doing so. And that made me think of Scooter from The Muppet Show, who was the stage manager. And it was his job to make sure that everything was in right relationship and that everyone was in right relationship to their props and, and their times and their cues and their roles and so forth and so scooter is basically the personification of pursuing righteousness for me from the puppets that's fantastic See, i haven't thought about scooter in a long time this is a this is blessing me deeply i like to bring him up now and then because he is one of the forgotten muppets and really we shouldn't forget any of the puppets it's true it's true yes we've we've also been on a bit of a sesame street kick because i grew up with sesame street most more more so than muppets and the muppets some oh me too but so we've been on a Sesame Street kick. So it's nice to get back to like the Muppets for the Muppet casting. Yes. But yeah. How about you, Emily? I really like Jesus as Fozzie Bear. I just <laughs> like, I could see Fozzie just being like, well, who am I? Who do you think I am? Like, and just like open to whatever they say, right? There's just this like warm, inviting presence in, that I think Fozzie Bear has to just yeah. like welcome in everybody's ideas of who this Messiah, who Jesus is from Miss Piggy to 
Jeremiah. And... Right. Everybody loves yeah. Fozzie, but they're a little bit annoyed with him, right? Kermit gets a little bit annoyed mm-hmm. with Fozzie sometimes mm-hmm. because he's a little too, too. Mm-hmm. He's a little too fabulous and too funny. And so that's the, I think the hesitation is like, oh, I don't know. Fozzie's a little over the edge. And I'm like, yeah, but what about so Jesus, Jesus being a little over the edge? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So Brenda, any other thoughts on life, the universe and everything? Oh my goodness. You know, we've been talking for almost two hours, so I'm out of brilliance. But <laughs> I mean, to me, I'm thinking as we're talking, I'm thinking like today's conversation was such a delight because we got to sort of expand on, and I know you do this every time, but like, you know, creative ways of looking at Jesus, looking at theology, those kinds of things. And even back to like what you bind on earth is bound on heaven and what you loose on earth is loose on heaven. This idea that Jesus is able to handle us wringing him out, opening him up in a new way, putting him in a box, taking him back out of a box, making him a stretch Armstrong. Like (laughs) Jesus is able to be looked at in all of these different ways. And I grieve that the church in wanting to keep it in a control, wanted Jesus to be a certain way. And sometimes we wanted Jesus to be, you know, a warrior, or we wanted Jesus to be a Republican, or we wanted, you know, Jesus to be looking just like us. And this idea that it's not, irreverent to play with him, mm-hmm. right? It's not irreverent yeah. to take him out of the box and play with him and love him and, and, and try to understand him, I think is the faithful thing. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder about that throughout the universe. What else should we be not holding as so rigid? And certainly as society becomes more curious about gender and neurodivergence and, ethnicity and what it really means or race and what it really means. I just think, you know, having a certain, there's a liberation in the freedom of exploration. And even to the point Emily made, you know, early on in this conversation, Judaism was based on Mm -hmm. rabbis arguing about things. They were willing, right? They knew that God wouldn't break if they, if they, if they wrestled with God. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a wonderful invitation and one that really would play to the unchurched, right? I think the unchurched is like, well, we can't mess with Jesus. Well, yeah, you can, right? (laughs) Jesus is going to be fine. (laughs) It's a Toy Story lesson. The the best toys (laughs) are the ones that have been loved and played with. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if people are interested in more of that kind of wrestling We'll link to our Easter Vigil episode from this year with Rabbi Becky Silverstein, and he talked out, he talked to us about midrash, which is a Jewish practice of diving into those stories that we know and and the things that are left out in them. And also our episode with Dr. Amy Jill Levine talking about parables from a couple weeks ago that she really does a great job of like digging into. Yes what parables are and the wrestling with them that was so much a part of it and sometimes gets removed in Christianity. But like, really, Jesus was about wrestling with those parables. Yeah. Well, this was amazing and wonderful. Absolutely. As are you, Brenda. (laughs) It was fun, wasn't it? I mean, like I said, this is really, I mean, I am blessed to think about (laughs) Jesus as Fozzie and Scooter, right? To remember Scooter. Yeah. And so thanks for joining. Thanks to you for joining us. And thanks to your listeners for joining us as well. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church 
or contact us at nerdsatchurch@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than buying 100 copies of the small catechism and so you can explain the Office of the Keys to all your family and friends. <laughs> Truth. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets musical for this episode. Oh, I thought that meant that would you cast us? I know I'm, I'm reading the script and I see that you're saying, no, who would you cast as Jesus? Because if you cast or me, sure. I, I really want, I want Janice the hippie from the Muppets. I love her so much. Absolutely. You know, and you, you have to look that up. You may not know who Janice oh, is. No, we've cast oh, no, blonde. she's amazing. We've cast yeah. Janice yeah. a couple times. Yeah. There's a movie and I don't remember which one it is where they're all arguing and all of a sudden they all stop and Janice is like, and I said to my mother, if I want to be naked, that's my choice. Mom. <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be her. That's fantastic. <laughs> also, I would love for you to be Janice, and then Janice is married to Janice. Yes, my yes. wife's name is Janice, yes. who is not a hippie who would ever be caught dead saying, "If I wanted to be naked, it's my in public. That's my right." Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. I love Bishop Brenda as Janice. Oh. Yeah, right. She would look great in purple. She would look great in purple. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, as the ancient Christian said. Pax Fobiscum. Pax Fobiscum. Yeah, that's, boy, you'd think I said Latin every day. Pax Fobiscum. <laughs>